This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, and welcome to the Lung Science Podcast. My name is Brian Hobbs, and I'm an instructor in medicine in the Channing Division of Network Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital, where I'm a pulmonologist and a genomics researcher. With me to discuss omics analysis and lung research is Blanca Himes, who is an assistant professor of informatics from the University of Pennsylvania. She has used omics approaches to study lung diseases, especially asthma, for the past 10 years. So welcome, Blanca. Thanks, happy to be here. So let's just jump right in here. Really what's interesting to me is that there have been major advances in how we acquire and analyze genomic, transcriptomic, proteomic, and metabolomic data over the past 10 years. So what do you think are some of the major findings from omics approaches in lung research? Yep, that is a complicated question in the sense that there are perhaps several major findings, um, and depending on the particular disease area that somebody might work with, um, they may feel that there's a lot of major findings, um, maybe few. Um, So I think it really depends on what specific um, area people are studying, whether that's a specific disease or a specific condition, um, or perhaps something like lung development. Um, Certainly some findings are more prominent than others. Um, So I'd say, for example, in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, um, the finding that mucin 5b, um, that gene, had associations um, in with pretty much with common variants. So they were pretty prevalent in the people with IPF um, that were um, originally studied using an approach called genome-wide association studies. Um, right. It was an unexpected finding and it's really held up and sort of stood the test of time. So, so a finding like that might be pretty prominent, although um, as is a theme, um, I, you know, it hasn't really made as much of a clinical impact as we'd want at this point in eight, um, at, at this point, um, since it's been several years since, since that discovery. Um, in asthma, for example, the disease that I study, I'd say one of the most well-known and, and just highly replicated, it's very reproducible finding is a genetic association signal at what we call the 17Q21 locus. Um, And we do that partly because we don't know precisely what gene of that locus is responsible for the association, but we observe it um, in pretty much any genome-wide association study that we do of asthma. Um, especially um, childhood asthma, um, childhood onset asthma. Um, right. And so, so there's potential genes in that area. Um, the ones that we often talk about are ORMDL3 and GSDMB. Um, but you know, over the past decade or so, as much as we've known that this association is there, we haven't quite um, figured out what to do with these genes in terms of you know, how do they lead to disease, um, and not just the genes, but the variants. Um, how do they lead to disease, or how can we use this information um, to, to, to really make a dent in, in, in understanding asthma. Yeah, yeah. Genome-wide association studies, you know, and, and for COPD, what I study, have, have been great in, in finding replicable results. Um, but yeah, finding the effector gene for these uh, genetic loci has been difficult. So, so what do you think the next big breakthrough will be that will occur in uh, omics research in lung um, or even critical care um, diseases? Yeah, I mean, next big breakthroughs, that's a good question. Um, um, I'd say some of the current approaches that that we've moved towards, so single cell technologies comes to mind, um, you know, single cell technology is especially used to look at gene expression, but potentially um, any any of these omics measurements can be done in a single cell. Uh, perhaps it 
um, and cancer even looking at the genotype of specific cells may make sense, although for many pulmonary traits that wouldn't. Um, but in any case, they become very popular and for good reason, right? Um, they may prove very fruitful, um, especially for diseases where we're not really clear on the pathobiology underlying them. So for example, IPF, COPD, acute respiratory distress symptom, uh, syndrome, they all come to mind. Um, we sort of arrive at diagnoses um, based on symptoms or characteristics that, that people have, uh, but we don't necessarily know what biological process led to them. Like we may know some of the things that contribute to them and, and these may be sort of downstream processes that people have in common, but, but sort of what were the original um, sort of insults or processes that led to people developing um, these diseases that we now sort of um, think consist of heterogeneous people we're not sure about. So, so omics approaches may help resolve sort of some of these specific mechanisms that lead to these same um, end symptoms um, that, that we now categorize as one disease. Um, so I'd, yeah. I'd say, yeah. And, and really that's kind of been one of the, um, that idea um, of trying to dissect some of the heterogeneity in these complex pulmonary diseases has been behind um, the investment by the NIH into the Transomics and Precision Medicine Initiative, TopMed, as a lot of people know it. And they've been generating multiomic data in a lot of lung disease cohorts, um, including those cohorts you and I work on. So, um, you know, can you comment on the analytical approaches that are going to be utilizing all this omics data that are being generated? Yeah, that's definitely an ongoing issue. Um, and, and on the one hand, I could tell you some of the practical things. So for instance, um, these data sets are very large. Um, it doesn't make sense to have sort of multiple copies of these humongous data sets um, just from a, from a cost standpoint alone. Um, so, so there is this um, effort to keep a lot of the data in the cloud, um, as, as one would say, rather than have people into download all these very large individual data sets. And if the data sets are gonna be in this sort of place where, where investigators can access them in the cloud, then it makes sense to also have analyses performed there. Um, and so that has its own set of limitations, right? Or how do you, how do you ensure that, that you sort of provide all of these analytical approaches widely um, to investigators? Um, and, and what about people who wanna develop novel approaches? Um, how do you make the data accessible to them? And of course, how do you protect the data um, that needs protecting, right? So, so some of the um, phenotype data for some of the cohorts may not be appropriate to share with all. And, and yeah, depending on consent processes and so on, the NHLBI has to be careful about um, how they make this data available. Um, so I think there's yeah. some of that, rather than the algorithms themselves, um, that becomes complex complicated about how, how, how one shares this. And, and really, that's just a, a matter of our technology that's not unique to pulmonary diseases, but it's becoming right. an issue, you know, for many data types. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it not, not just the fact that many of these data sets are several terabytes and can't be easily or cheaply moved. Um, but like you said, data security, when we're using both um, public, public and private cloud systems, uh, becomes an issue. Um, rather than just the actual methods and algorithms being used to analyze it. Yeah, and I'd say some of the analytical approaches for some of these data sets um, can be implemented. And so the example for that would be, how do we perform a genome-wide association analysis? Um, you know, there's not sort of active methods development going on there um, the way there might have been 10 years ago when this was new data. Um, and so from that standpoint, it, it's okay to have somewhat routine analyses. Of course, one has to be conscientious of, of experimental design 
you know, whether one is using a technology that's been around a long time or not, but, uh, but there's still novel development, for instance, how do we deal with genomes of diverse populations or what we would consider admixed populations, you know, can we take into account genetic ancestry in a more sophisticated way. Um, so there's still a lot of methods development that can happen. Um, so, so again, there's this balance of you want to give data um, to individuals who are interested in, in doing this methods development, but also make it so that the people who just want to answer clinical questions with perhaps more routine analyses can also do so efficiently. Yeah, and, and, and these multiple different omic data sets are just now becoming available so you know, methods can be developed. Um, but did you anticipate that we're making significant progress so far that in the next five years we'll have um, the right methods in place to try to integrate these data to something that's translatable to the clinical setting? Yep, that, that's a great question. And of course, um, the NHLBI is investing all of this. I would say I'm speaking for the NHLBI, but of course, um, <laughs> I don't know exactly what they're thinking. But um, right. but as far as I can tell, it, I mean, they wouldn't be investing this many resources into the whole effort if they didn't think that all of this were possible. But, you know, I'd say the, the, the bigger barrier isn't, you know, do we have an analytical approach to integrate omics data? I'd say, yes, we can. And, and we currently try to integrate data. But at the end of the day, especially to, to validate findings and to translate them them into uh, maybe something that will be used at the point of care. Um, we still have to do old-fashioned science, right? We still rely on prospective studies. Um, we still have to focus on specific hypotheses. So, so if if by integrating a lot of omics data, we end up with like a very large network of stuff connected to each other, all of which may be true and all of which may be reproducible. Um, it's different to have that than to sort of reduce that into something that can that can really um, sort of go to that next. Um, stage. So, so I'd say um, the slowness um, is the fact that we still have to rely on, on prospective studies and, and careful mechanistic studies to really validate specific findings. Um, but hopefully the omics data can point us towards the, the maybe optimal hypotheses. So, so again, that's maybe where the analytical approaches come in, right? How can yeah. we be sure that when we're integrating data, what we rank as the quote unquote top hit really is the top hit when we have all of these heterogeneous data sets. Right, yeah, it, it can be um, sometimes difficult to have a specific hypothesis when you're kind of entering the unworld, unknown world of, of networks, but uh, it, it still remains important kind of basic principles of research. Yeah, especially, if, um, again, if we're doing biomarker testing or, or eventually if we're trying to develop a drug, you know, um, we, we usually do one thing at a time. Um, and maybe the biomarker is based on a panel, but, but yeah, um, we have to still reduce something to a testable hypothesis to conduct a, a proper perspective study. Yeah, and speaking of biomarkers, you know, in, in a lot of ways, common pulmonary diseases um, are behind other complex diseases in that our biomarkers aren't as good. You know, if you look at heart disease or diabetes, um, but also we're behind them in that they're generating these large cohorts for omics analyses, and they've always had a few more individuals, actually a lot more individuals, and, and, and you know, and larger sets of data for analysis. Um, and some of that may be because it's very difficult to obtain lung-specific uh, cells and tissues, um, both because of, you know, it's just hard to get access to those tissues safely, but also because of the heterogeneity once you actually do get a biopsy of those tissues. So that causes some problems. And can, can you, you know, comment on this from, from your standpoint as a, as a researcher? Like, what, what are the challenges in performing omics analyses in uh, pulmonary diseases related to the availability of lung tissue and lung specific cells. Yeah, I'd say that's definitely a big issue. And um, 
um, yeah, I, I mean, you, you sort of nailed it right there. Um, and I think we're all, all of us who do pulmonary research in one capacity or another are aware of it, right? Um, a lot of times the, the target tissue that we want to perhaps biopsy isn't available. So I'd say an exception might be um, cancer or some disease where you literally get a biopsy, right? Um, but in my case for asthma, um, it's, it's not appropriate to maybe um, extract pieces of people's lungs for obvious reasons. Um, um, so we have to rely, you know, perhaps we get bronchial brushings, um, but, but even at the point of care, it wouldn't be realistic to expect that we're going to um, you know, be, be very invasive with a patient. Um, so on the one hand, it makes sense to try to, to use um, blood um, to, to get a blood-based biomarker because that would probably be used at the point of care. Um, but on the other hand, that brings in all kinds of complicated issues, right? Um, because the blood is sort of this mixture of all kinds of cells. Um, and, and we don't really understand very well how to characterize that and, and how to relate the changes that are happening in blood to what's happening in the lung. So, so that's certainly a limitation um, that makes it difficult to study lung diseases. Um, but but we're right. definitely making a lot of improvements, and and I say this is where non-invasive phenotyping is very helpful, right? Um, so I'd say for COPD comes to mind, right? Where imaging right. Um, is becoming, um, we're just getting better imaging data um, overall, and in a greater volume of it, we're getting more longitudinal data. Um, so hopefully, this sort of better phenotyping complements um, these omega approaches, right, to, to better understand um, what's happening in, in the tissues that, that matter the most um, for some of these lung diseases. Right. Yeah, and, and, and we just kind of talked about, you know, the, the, the negative side of this, the difficulties with multiomic analyses and where we need to go with that, and then kind of the difficulties of working with uh, pulmonary diseases because of tissue um, and cell type availability. But still, you know, that hasn't stopped people from putting in a lot of project proposals. And many of these have incorporated, um, you know, RNA-seq or some other omics aspect, even if it's not a purely omics-based um, project. So um, do, you, do you feel that this is kind of the trend that most basic research um, is going to benefit more in, in incorporating omics data? Well, of course I'm biased, but I would say yes. Uh, although, you know, it doesn't mean that everybody needs to incorporate or mix data into their studies. I mean, there's a places where it's quite appropriate and, and it may lead to a lot of insights and others um, where it just doesn't make sense. So, so, you know, it's still science. We still have to have proper design of, of experiments based on what we're trying to do. But, um, you know, get sort of getting back to what we were just talking about um, related to new projects, right? So for instance, uh, metabolomics um, technologies are becoming better, right? And maybe metabolomics is a better technique that we can use um, in the tissues that we can get non-invasively. So perhaps uh, breath condensate, urine, um, even blood, right? Maybe measuring metabolites there is a better idea than to look at gene expression or some other, um, you know, some other omics technology, right? Um, right. So with metabolomics, maybe we can't get the full range of metabolites. Um, there's more issues in how do we analyze this and how do we make sure that we have what we think is there uh, but but hey that may be an, an amazing technology for a specific question that somebody's ans um, asking and so so yeah absolutely incorporate that into a study um, if you can but on the other hand um, you know it, one just has to be aware of the fact that just because you're throwing in a metabolomics or an RNA-seq study doesn't mean um, you're going to find something useful. You have to still, or one has to still try to think about why why that may be the best technology and how one is going to validate whatever one finds. Right. So interpreting these types of analyses, um, you know, either if you're performing them yourself or if someone's performing them for you, um, can be difficult. Do, do you feel that... Um, 
junior investigators uh, need to have uh, some basic training in omics approaches, um, even if that's not going to be the main focus of their career? Um, yeah, that's a great question. So I'd, I'd say for some junior investigators, I mean, having familiarity with all of this is helpful. Um, but but yeah, it's different. It, you know, exactly what do you mean by main focus of the career, right? Um, because, you know, ultimately, some of these genetic association markers may become more important. Um, maybe eventually there will be more gene expression based biomarkers at the point of care. I mean, certainly for some diseases, we already include um, genetic information in a medical record, um, and we use it for diagnosing um, diseases. Um, so in those cases, obviously, an understanding of what that data is and how one arrived at that is, is essential, um, not just for research, but, but for really understanding the results of some tests. Uh, but in terms of the nitty gritty of every single step of analysis, um, that I'd say is it's better um, left to people who really wanna um, have incorporate omics into their full um, research um, um, efforts, if you will. Um, and at that, you know, it, you know, for those of us who do this and, and you're one of them, Brian, uh, you know, you know right. that you, one, one can easily get lost in the weeds. There's just potentially so much to learn. Um, so, so balancing exactly where that is, 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 is a tough one, but, but certainly if, sure. if one is going to even lead omics analyses, it, it's important to, to know what's happening, even if you're not doing it day to day. Um, but you have to know enough so that you know that the people who are performing it day to day, when they give you results, you, you, you know what to ask and you can feel confident about what they're reporting to you um, instead of feeling like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not confident that this is reproducible or I don't know what they're talking about. And, and if that's the case, then it's hard to, to, to envision that you're really going to um, feel like you're moving science forward if you're, if you're not right, confident in the data. Yeah, and, and, and I know this from my experience as a, as a junior investigator, and I'm sure you have a lot of experience with this as well, and, and collaborations with individuals, um, you know, there's, there's some balance of how much of the analysis you want to do yourself versus how much you entrust or, or you know, give to a collaborator. And, you know, what, what do you think is, is the appropriate balance of performing analyses yourself versus outsourcing? You know, how do you know where your, where your limit is and where someone else may be able to help someone like yourself, you know, data scientists, bioinformaticians, um, uh, working with yeah. someone like myself who's, you know, trained as an MD and with a little bit of bioinformatics training? Yeah, no, that's a great question too. Um, but yeah, I'd say in terms of cores, that, that's a good, it's, it's always an issue, right? Um, there are certain technologies that are more robust, or should we put it that way, right? Um, where, where there's just less guessing about, um, is this technology appropriate or not, or, or can I trust these results, right? They're, right? they're large companies who provide, let's say, genotype data, gene expression data, and we can be pretty sure that they're robust and there's enough quality control metrics that come along with it that uh, we can be confident about it. But, uh, but I'd say still for analysis, um, a lot of cores will just do sort of the bare minimum, which makes sense for them, right? And they'll just maybe provide an Excel document to somebody at the end saying, well, here's your list of top differentially expressed genes. And then they sort of, you know, sort of wave goodbye um, and walk away. And some investigators just get a very large file and, and they don't even know what to do with it. Um, they don't even know how to interpret the results. Right. So, yeah. so that can be very disconcerting. So I would say, especially for junior investigators, if, if you're new to this, um, definitely work with a team um, that has experience with whatever data set. Don't just outsource um, because you won't feel confident about what you're getting. Um, so you definitely need to, to, to feel like you have a grasp of what you got. Um, and if somebody shows you, let's say, the, the full quality control that, or, or the full steps of analysis that went through, um, you may not understand it all, but, um, 
a good collaborator, I would say, will make an effort to, to help you feel confident about the results. So perhaps show you some of the, the common sense, if you will, the positive controls that you expect or why your data seems to be good. Maybe if there was a batch effect, they'll try to explain that to you right. instead of just sort of following a set of steps, giving you an Excel document, and, and that's the end of the story. Maybe the Excel document has amazing results, but you just won't know it um, if you're not working with somebody who's, who cares enough to try to um, go through it and, and help interpret with you. Right, yeah, definitely. You know, often uh, when you're doing omics analyses, and this has been one of my struggles, is there's a tension between um, discovery doing unsupervised analyses and, and, and having hypothesis-driven um, research with these omics approaches. So can you comment about uh, your considerations in study design and what we have to think about prior to starting an experiment where we're incorporating omics data? Yeah, I mean, I'd say to some extent, most omics data um, or most ex omics experiments um, are discovery based. Um, sure, you can apply an omics based technology to you sort of have a hypothesis, but oftentimes the hypotheses are something like, well, I hypothesize that a whole bunch of people with this disease will have different gene expression than others. And, you know, that's sort of not a very good hypothesis in the, in a mechanistic sense. Right. Um, so, so I'd say omics approaches in general are used by virtue of them being unbiased, but, but that's precisely what we want in these cases, right. Especially for diseases that we don't have a good grasp about um, using an unbiased approach may be the way to, to get us to something we never would have discovered otherwise. And, and that's exemplified by GWAS, right. Um, right. The, the top, that we have in asthma, the top findings that we have in COPD or um, IPF and various others, um, we wouldn't have arrived at if, if we had sort of gone through like mechanistic hypotheses after mechanistic hypotheses. Um, omics technologies really have let, let us arrive at these sort of um, regions of the genome that maybe we wouldn't have considered. Uh, but that being said, like there, you know, once once we've discovered these regions, there it's still critical to do some mechanistic. Uh, or hypothesis-driven research to figure out what these right. do. Um, at that stage, I'd say um, the, the role is still there. So, so the question is, you know, how do you conceive of an omics experiment that, that somebody won't, or somebody, i.e. a study section or your advisor or somebody might just say, well, that's just a fishing expedition. Um, right. You know, you're not going to find anything useful out of that. Um, you definitely can find something useful. It's just a matter of pairing the right technology to, to the question on hand and, and based on, you know, what we do or don't know. Um, you know, to some extent, maybe we can say that that was a helpful thing of GWAS because in the early days we thought, oh, we'll understand all of these complex diseases within a matter of years because we'll we'll figure out these genetic variants. They'll be highly associated with disease and almost causing the disease in the way that that we used to think of genetics for that that still applies to rare diseases, right? Where there's a single variant um, that that just leads to a very strong effect, um, and that's not the case for complex diseases, which which is fine. You know, it, it's good that we discovered that early on and and we sort of adapted and, and move um, accordingly. So, so yeah, the role is still there um, to do unbiased studies. Um, right. And, and, you know, in the, in the term you use, fishing expedition has been, has been used a lot in such a negative way, but you gave the example of GWAS, where uh, without the fishing expedition, we wouldn't have these high confidence replicated um, results that, you know, give us some uh, hypothesis-driven seeds for future research. I mean, I, I'm very biased in that opinion, but has your, your um, experience with study sections been uh, that they're receptive to kind of seeing the difference here and the kind of the value of uh, these fishing expeditions um, leading to 
hypothesis-driven research? Well, sure. And first of all, please, nobody will use the term fishing expedition in, <laughs> in a grant application, but, uh, but certainly I, I think it varies by study section, right? So some study sections by their nature, um, are, you know, look into mechanistic hypotheses and, you know, they're just very focused on very specific questions. Um, but, you know, ironically, some of those study sections may love um, an application that's based off of a top hit of a GWAS, but even though they may not have supported performing the GWAS in the first place, right? So again, there, that's where this tension can, can be present. But, but certainly there are study sections um, that are very receptive to omic studies, again, if there's good design, right? You can't just say like, well, I'm going to gather data for 100 patients and then AIM-1, I'm going to do a GWAS, AIM-2, I'm going to do gene expression of whole blood, and AIM-3, I'm going to do metabolites. Like, well, that, that, that literally sounds like a fishing expedition. It's like, who are these 100 people? And why do you think that doing that is useful? You know, do you even have enough power based on based on the past decade of research to, to find anything in 100 people? And maybe you do, maybe you don't. So, so there still has to be some thoughtful approach about why, you know, using the specific omics techniques that you have in mind um, with the specific experimental design, whether that's um, gathering data for a lot of individuals for, I don't know, performing uh, mouse or other um, um, animal model experiments is appropriate. Um, so, so yeah, I'd say it, it's just a matter of like, do you have a good study design? Um, and even if it's not a mechanistic hypothesis, I would say certainly some study sections are receptive to it. And, and the NHLBI is receptive, right? This is, I mean, they right. have, they have the whole efforts on, on, on acquiring omics data. So they see value. Um, so, so yeah. Right. It, yeah, and um, we had, we're just talking a little bit about genome-wide association studies, and I want to kind of um, talk specifically about um, how genome-wide association studies have uh, kind of led the way, you know, across biomedical research in, in being a template for reproducible research, not just the strict multiple testing uh, penalties we set for, you know, genome-wide significance for hits, but also the requirement for external validation of findings, but that's only one aspect of reproducible research. So um, can you comment on what reproducible research means to you and how the pulmonary research community can improve on specific things like uh, code availability, data sharing, and other things to produce high quality replicable results? Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways when at least to me, like, you know, you asked me my opinion. So my opinion is that reproducible research partly just means, do we trust what we're getting, right? Like, have we, have we done everything we can to make sure that what we have is, is valid? Um, and so I think part of the reason that we call it reproducible and not um, the truth or something like that is because sometimes, despite our best efforts, what we're finding um, is not quote unquote true, right? Um, because that, that's the whole point of statistical tests, right? There's certain, some uncertainty with what we're finding, uh, but the idea of reproducible research is, do we trust what we're finding enough that we wanna take it to a next step? Um, and, and I'd say not just uh, genome-wide association studies, but early gene expression studies, um, I mean, some of the findings just were not reproducible, right? Um, and, and people wanted to publish their papers and they would, um, and, and some people actually had bad intentions. And, and so if you have bad intentions, I'd say reproducible research can overcome that entirely, uh, but it can help. Uh, but some of the findings that didn't replicate, the people who obtained them had good intentions. Um, perhaps they just didn't use best practices. So, so I'd say as a scientific community, we're just trying our best to come up with, with findings that we can um, think are true uh, rather than just, oh, let's publish a paper and then just 
shelf that result away. Um, we want to make sure that whatever we're finding can be taken to the next level. And maybe it's not tomorrow, but maybe one day we'll find some some helpful insight into a, a disease or condition. Um, so so yeah, all of the things you mentioned, um, making code available is helpful just so that you know you report a result, but then you share your raw data with someone. Um, and and they have no idea what what you actually did to get to get said result um and right. so making the code available helps with that um partly because if you just describe it in a few words um there's a lot between a few words and um code and and the same goes with experiments right if we read the experimental methods of some papers we don't really have the full list that would allow us to perform that experiment in our own lab um so not just code but sort of this availability of methods more broadly um to really help people either reproduce what we did exactly or, or validate our findings um, is one way to ensure reproducibility. Um, but yeah, data sharing, I mean, um, that's that's the whole point of TopMed. We're trying to share data, um, but, but there is this balance of how do we share data in a responsible way, right? So oftentimes right. we have people's data, we can't just, you know, make it widely available. Um, and we also, I'd say a lot of the people who collected these cohorts who perhaps, um, I don't know, spent decades of their life collecting them, they feel very connected to them, right? They, they interacted with these people personally um, and, and they want to protect their people their, that participated in their cohorts and so on. They also want to make sure that people who don't understand the maybe clinical questions that they originally had don't misuse the data um, or, or misuse it in the sense that they may answer questions that, that don't make sense um, clinically or biologically, right? So um, right. anyway, so there's this balance there of how do, how do we let other people use the data, but in a responsible way, um, without sort of putting a lot of red tape around it, so that it essentially means that nobody can use the data. Um, so, so yeah, that I'd say those are the main things, right? <laughs> our methods yeah. and our data. <laughs> um, <laughs> instead of just like let's look at re, you know reports of results and and, and just trust them. Um, okay, very good. Well, Blanca, it's very nice to talk to you today. Thank you for joining us. Thank and you. Thank you to. Oh, yeah. And thank you to all the <laughs> listeners for joining us today. Uh, this episode of the Lung Science Podcast was, as always, brought to you by the American Journal of Respiratory Cell and Molecular Biology. If you'd like to listen to more episodes of the podcast, please visit atsjournals.org or subscribe to the Lung Science Podcast on iTunes or Google Play. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.